Hello and welcome to the MDDDS Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala. We're trying something a little bit different this week. This is some music from a friend of mine, Blair James. He plays guitar with me in the Night of Praise events that I do. He's kind enough to lend this music to us for this podcast. Uh, you know, most podcasts, they have songs when they start, so we thought we would try that out. Um, if you've listened to our podcast before, you'll know that we are in the Apologetics series that we're doing. We're doing about six or seven weeks on that. Last week, I spoke on the question of, did God design the universe? And this week, David Flatt will be teaching on, did uh, God have a hand, let's say, in the way that the universe began? And so we're going to look at, did the universe begin to exist? And I think the deeper question of, why did it begin to exist? So again, thank you for being here with us. Let's go to David right now. All right, well, thanks for coming tonight. We are going to talk about why did the universe begin, and I guess this is the... That's good. This is the, yeah, so is it, I think this is the third lesson in our apologetic series, and um, so let's just go ahead and jump in. I think this is an important question. There probably hasn't been a significant... Uh, thinker in you know the history of philosophy that's that's pondered the go- the great questions uh, that hasn't come to this question. So obviously, if you if you're a human, you're here, and so how are you here, and and why are you here, and what does it mean? Why are you not here? You know, like why did why does the universe exist? So I think all that's kind of tied in uh, to tonight's topic. So that's what we'll talk about. Tonight. I thought you were saying you're here, like. That would be a logical fallacy. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's just kind of brief, briefly think about apologetics. This has been our theme verse for this uh, series of First Peter three fifteen. Always be prepared to make a defense. That's the Greek word apologia, and that's why we call it apologetics, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we really want to be about all of that. We want to be prepared. We want to take the idea of giving a defense for Christianity seriously. We want to be people who recognize that, that we have a greater hope than just what's in this world. And then we also want to be people who are kind and respectful. So all that's about who we are. So uh, I don't know how many Star Wars fans are here, uh, but there's this... I'm kind of mad about Star Wars. I think like the last movie was just... All, like it was almost a great movie, and they just decided to... Yeah, I mean, it wasn't bad. It was almost great, and they messed up in the plot. We can argue about that later. But there is a cool character development that I think is is really neat. Um, and kind of is almost like, you know, there's all this kind of like spiritual allegories in Star Wars. So I think about the guy, uh, about Han Solo. He's like this arrogant, young, 20-something, doesn't really believe in the Force, and is kind of questioning everything in the universe. And then later... He, after he's got some life experience and has studied what life's about, he comes to, to believe that it's all true. So I wanted to show this like short little clip that I think is, is kind of meaningful and relevant to apologetics. Man. So let me see if we can get some sound. I'll probably make it uh, do better. Am I muted? I heard a little bit. There was a little bit there. Okay. So we probably just need to turn it up.
That's a good storytelling. That's awesome. And uh, so I think there's there's some truth to that for us. You know, you kind of look at uh, some some claims about Christianity, and at first they may seem crazy, and to the world they seem crazy. Uh, but I think it's worth a second look, and so that's what this series is about. I want to encourage you guys when you uh, finish studying for boards, or maybe if your spouse is studying for boards and you're looking for something to do, uh, these are two books that have really been uh, meaningful and impactful to me. So they're both written by the, the same guy we talked about, William Lane Craig. The book on the left, Reasonable Faith, it's maybe kind of a, a little more advanced, I guess, than than On Guard, but it kind of looks at the, kind of the history of Christian theology and apologetics. It's really a neat, a neat book. And then On Guard is really practical. Um, so I think you're thinking about being parents, being a, a, a Christian leader in a secular world, thinking about wanting to equip yourself uh, to defend your faith. These are two resources I really uh, would recommend to you. So we've talked about in this series, there's this Christian philosopher and apologi- apologist named William Lane Craig, who's really just um, made, is one of the most influential people in my life, you know, and it's kind of funny um, in the world of you know, books and Amazon and podcasts and the internet, you can, somebody can have this huge influence on you and um, you don't even really know him. Um, so I've, uh, I have had pizza with him uh, twice. So I've talked to him before, but uh, I don't really know him. But he's a great, great Christian thinker and has uh, made a big, big impact on me. And so I, I think it would not be fair to do this lesson and not talk about him because most of these are his ideas. And I just have, have read his books and I'm regurgitating it. Okay, so I want to think about, this is a, maybe a concept that's it's important to me, and I want to think about truth and how we interact with truth. And I, I kind of want to submit that we interact with truth at, at three levels. And so your blank there is one of the great, great pursuits of the fully lived Christian life is the gaining of wisdom, is the gaining of wisdom. So how do you interact with truth? I want to suggest there's three levels. The first is facts. So these are things about the universe that are true, and you know them as facts. This would be things like um, oxygen is a compound made up of two molecules. That's just a a fact. It's something that's factually true. Um, Dogs have four legs. Um, You know, my my spouse is Lauren. These are things that are, are factually true. And so I think you've met people, both probably Christians and atheists, who they kind of interact and live kind of at the factual level. So you've probably argued with somebody like this, and it's really frustrating. They, uh, you'll be arguing about something theological or not, and maybe they're just like quoting verses back at you, and you think, well, that's not what that verse means. Did you read the like verse right before that and right after that? Or maybe you're kind of the maybe like the village atheist that you might run into and really get in a heated argument with. Some of that's like that. They're just like quoting scientific facts to you. You think that's, that's not how those facts fit together and that's not like a kind of a deeper understanding. So think about facts are things that are true about the world, but the next level, level two, is knowledge, which I think that's kind of the point of school and, and even graduate school. You want to think about all the things you're learning in med school or dental school, how do these facts fit together into a coherent worldview? So yeah, maybe you know that the heart has four chambers and maybe you know that there's a afferent, efferent arterial in the kidney, but like, what does that have to do with each other and how does that matter? So what you're trying to do is pursue knowledge. How does the systems of the body, once you understand the facts about them, how do they fit together? And so that's how you can be a person of knowledge. And so that's, of course, good. As Christians, we want to pursue facts and knowledge. But really, the Christian pursuit is, is something called wisdom. And so what the wisdom is, is an idea of taking knowledge and a coherent worldview and applying that to live life well. So sometimes you'll hear like, um, 
Christianity is a worldview. Well, that's true, but Christianity is more than a worldview. Christianity is a, a life lived. So we don't just want to know things about life. We want to discover a worldview that can then be lived out in wisdom. And so there, there's a whole book in the Bible about this. This is what the book of Proverbs is about, how to be a wise person. And so I just say all to say that wisdom is the ability to pl- apply facts, knowledge, and judgment to live life well. Facts, knowledge, and judgment to live life well. And so as we think about the facts and the knowledge we want to talk about tonight, how can we climb this you know, metaphorical mountain, so to speak, to be a wise person, to live a true, good, and beautiful life? And so with that, let's think about how did the universe begin. So um, maybe a, a bad joke teller would tell you kind of the punchline before the joke. So that's what I'm going to do tonight because uh, I actually think that makes it for a bad joke, but it can make for a good lesson, right? So if we kind of say what I'm going to tell you, then we'll watch a video, then I'll tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then we'll kind of review what I said at the end. Uh, but this, this four and a half minutes is basically the whole talk, um, and then we'll kind of try to unpack it uh, after we watch it. All right, well, that's the, uh, the video. I, I thought it was really well done. There was a lot of stuff in there that I um, just was really presented well and clearly. So I'd, maybe I'm probably not going to live up to the standards of that video over the next 25 minutes. But maybe we can unpack some things that will be helpful. So let's maybe briefly kind of do a quick historical survey of the thought about uh, this question, did the universe begin to exist? So let's first maybe say, if you're talking about Western philosophy and thinking in the West, it really starts with the Greeks, uh, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, um, really kind of a neat story how we even know what they thought, but that's kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about tonight. But the point is, the Greeks had a view of this question, of how, when, or when or why did the universe begin to exist? And their answer was it didn't begin to exist. The universe was eternal. The universe had always existed. So that's your blank there. The universe is eternal. So in, in Greek thought, they would say that God may be responsible for introducing order into the cosmos, but he did not create the universe. The universe has always been here. So the universe uh, would not be a contingent. It wasn't dependent on anything. It had just always existed. This, of course, is not what Jewish thought has, has taught. And from the very beginning, um, uh, Genesis 1.1 would say, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In a lot of ways, that's one of the most important verses in the Bible, right? So if you think about that verse and all that it implies and means, really significant, even philosophically. And so this was a great debate in Western civilization. Was the universe eternal? As uh, really the, the smartest people of the day have kind of thought for 19, two, 1900, 2000 years. Or did the universe begin to exist in the way that these maybe smaller tribal religious sects uh, thought. So really, from the Jewish tradition, you get Judaism, Christianity, and importantly, Islam. Islam has been an important player in this conversation. Um, and all of these religions, the three great world religions, all believe that the universe has not is not eternal, but has always existed. So this debate went, uh, went for centuries. Pagans, Jews, Muslims, Christians, uh, the best thinkers from each tradition kind of interacting with the conversation. And then in the 1700s, there's this famous uh, philosopher named Immanuel Kant, and um, maybe not, I don't think he's like, not my favorite thinker, so to speak, but he's been maybe one of the most influential thinkers in Western thought. And so probably a lot of the things that you think or believe, even without kind of processing why you think that, is because of thoughts that he had. Because he influenced people who influenced people who influenced people who kind of set the tones and mores of, of Western society today. But he, um, and this is just kind of a perfect Western uh, postmodern statement here in the 1700s. You can kind of see how this would like, 
yeah, that's probably leading to where we are here in 2018. But he said there are rational, rationally compelling arguments for both sides. So his thought was, yeah, there's good reasons to believe that the universe has always existed. Yeah, there's good reasons to believe the universe came into existence. We can't really know. And so kind of hit a standstill in the 1700s, just like, you know, 2,000-year-old debate, and it kind of didn't make a lot of progress from that point on um, until the, in the last century, which we'll get into. But first, I do want to talk about this uh, Muslim theologian named Al-Ghazali. So this guy lived in the 12th century Persia, which would be modern-day Iran, and he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And maybe a, a side note here, I think this is an interesting opportunity to interact with people who, of course, we disagree with our Muslim friends about a lot of important religious questions, about a lot of things, but we don't disagree on everything. And in fact, this is an important uh, topic that Muslims and Christians have found each other to be allies on over the century. So I have a couple of Muslim friends that we maybe talk about God and theology sometimes, and this is a neat concept or a neat topic to talk about for two reasons. One, because we agree, right? So we agree there's one God that created us and how do we relate to our Creator? But two, because some of the best thinking about this topic was done in the 12th century by this prominent Muslim uh, theologian. So you can kind of start in a cool spot with a Muslim friend who maybe is uh, used to not having uplifting conversations with Christians. You say, hey man, I really respect your tradition. There's this guy, Al-Ghazali, 12th, 12th century. Uh, he said some things that a lot of Christians today think are pretty cool. So his thought, he came up... Um, Here's, here's the his, maybe a famous sentence from his book. He wrote a book called Against the Philosophers. So he, Al-Ghazali is interacting with the Greek philosophers out of the, the like um, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Socratic tradition. And he wrote this book called Against the Philosophers. And here's a famous sentence from the book that kind of encapsulates um, his thoughts. So he said, Every being which begins has a cause for its be beginning. Now the world is a being which begins... Therefore, it possesses a cause for its beginning. So that's like a perfect theologian's sentence, right? I think there's like two semicolons. I see a comma up there. It's like, you're like, man, that should be like three sentences, right? We should like put a period, you know, add an article, capital letter, whatever. Um, but that's just the way like all great, like if you read Paul, like you read Romans, that's the way that like Paul writes. He'll have like a sentence that's like six verses. You're like, man, what are you doing? So let's break that down for maybe uh, something that would make my brain feel a little more comfortable. So really, there's three premises here in that sentence. He says that, number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. That's your blank there, cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. And number three, therefore, the universe has a cause. So... Each week when we've done this, we kind of talked a little bit about logical reasoning and how that works. So basically what we want to do is we want to lay out premises, one and two, and, we want to, and then we want to say if, the, if one and two are true, then three should follow. So we want to have coherent, um, logical follow-through, so to speak. So then we say, well, if whatever begins to exist has a cause, if that's true, and two is true, the universe begins to exist, then therefore it follows that three, the universe has a cause, must be true. So then what we're left with in terms of argument and philosophical inquiry is to determine is one true and is two true? Because if those are true, then we're led to our conclusion, which of course has pretty significant uh, religious implications. If the universe began to, if the universe has a cause, that's very meaningful uh, for a lot of religious questions. It makes a difference than if the universe doesn't have a cause and has always existed. 
So why don't we start with this first premise and and uh, flow from there? So the universe begins. Wait, I'm sorry. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. I think an interesting story about um, Craig's work on this argument. So Craig, you know, goes to um, works on his PhD and decides he's going to do his work on Al Ghazali and his argument. And his thought was that he needed to spend most of his time talking about the second premise, which was um, that the universe began to exist. His thinking was the first premise is obviously true and no one's really going to argue about that, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. So I'm going to spend the bulk of my book talking about the second premise. As it's turned out, is the first premise is kind of under um, maybe more attack than it would be expected. And I think in a way it's kind of a backhanded compliment to the second premise that the universe began to exist that we'll get to in a minute. Uh, because if, if rumor of one and two are true, then you're kind of forced to the conclusion. And the scientific evidence for two is so strong now that now we're kind of having some interaction on can things begin to exist without a cause, which is kind of seems like a weird scientific argument to be having. Um, but let's just talk about it briefly. So I would say that something cannot come from nothing. So there, you know, the, in the sound of music, they say um, um, nothing something can't come from nothing nothing ever does that like famous song so that's just true right things don't just pop into exist out of nothing so really to, to drive home the point think about like are, is anyone in here worried right now that an animal is going to pop into existence in your bedroom at home and be like peeing on the carpet or you know destroying the back seat of your car well of course not in fact we're kind of laughing about it because it's ridiculous and of course it's ridiculous things don't pop into existence out of nothing um, Craig's got a good line. He says that's worse than magic because with magic, at least you have a hat and a magician. So the bunny's not even the bunny's not popping into existence out of nothing. There's a, a magician and a hat, and then pulling the bunny out of the hat, which of course is not true. Your bunnies don't come from hats. But the idea that things can come into existence out of nothing is worse than that. It's saying that there is nothing and out pops something. So before we just kind of brush it off, maybe I ought to say something. If you watch like a documentary about the universe on like the Discovery Channel or History Channel or whatever, they'll talk about like vacuum fluctuations maybe and how when you have this like sea of energy, uh, particles of matter can arise out of the sea of energy. And the point there is that uh, I don't think they're being manipulated. I mean, they're trying to tell a story of the universe from a scientific perspective. That's all fine. The religious implications though is um, we just need to understand what nothing is. So nothing is not a vacuum of energy full of all the gravitational properties of energy and force. And they, Nothing is not anything, right? So nothing is not empty space. Nothing is not even space, right? Nothing is not anything. So the idea that um, out of a vacuum fluctuations in a field of energy can produce matter is not somehow a contradiction or an argument with the first premise. So the first premise, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Um, okay, so then you, so every time you, if you watch one of these like debates online, and, um, or even if you go to one of the debates, you know, they have like a question and answer session after the debate. Every single time someone will, like a, you know, a, a smart kid maybe in philosophy class and feels kind of confident will walk up to the microphone and ask the same question every every debate. And so we, hey, I'm following you, but have you thought of the fact that if everything that begins to exist has a cause, then what caused God? And I ask it, you know, really self-confidently, like this is this great thought that no one's ever had until tonight in this, you know, auditorium. I'm going to, you know, stump the professor, so to speak. 
And um, at some level, like, I appreciate the question, the, the guy's thinking who asked the question, but it's also a good time to reflect on basic Christian theology. So the, the premise is that everything that begins to exist, that's your blank, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Okay, so that's, that's the premise that we're defending. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. But in Christian theology, God is eternal and uncaused, right? So God never came into being. He has always existed, right? And that, that's important not just for talking about you know, the origin of the universe, but for a lot of Christian theology, it's, it's important. God is not contingent on anything. He's not dependent on anything. There never was a moment or a time or a set of events that God would not exist in or be um, omnipotent or omniscient over. God did not begin to exist. And so I think it's important to point out this is not special pleading for God, right? So um, Greek and pagan thought said that the universe has always existed, and the universe is the non-contingent being, and so that's why we don't need an explanation for the universe coming to existence because it's been eternal. So the interesting question is, did the universe begin to exist? Because if it did, then we need an explanation for its existence. Quentin Smith is an atheist that um, has interacted uh, with Craig and been a part of, of some of these debates. And in one of the debates, he has this line. He says, the universe came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. And uh, it's, um, it's been kind of called the, uh, the Gettysburg Address of Atheism. Right? Just kinda, that's, that's what, if you're an atheist, that's kind of where uh, logical thought's got to take you. You really have to believe that out of nothing, by nothing, and for nothing came everything. So I'll just leave it up to you guys if, if that's a reasonable uh, premise to kind of build your life on. Uh, I, think, I think there's another question we should ask. Why, if, if things can come into existence out of nothing, then why don't all kinds of things come into existence out of nothing? So why don't bicycles just appear? And then, like we said, God is the eternal and uncaused, so he doesn't need an explanation for his beginning because he never began. So here's the three premises again. Let's talk about the second one, that the universe began to exist. This is the most important one because I think if we're really after honest intellectual inquiry and we're wanting to learn and discover truth, knowledge, and wisdom, facts, knowledge, and wisdom about the universe, then we can't believe one. I mean, can you imagine if you were um, in your organic chemistry class in undergrad and you're trying to synthesize a compound and you brought the compound to your professor and said, I found it. And he said, well, how'd you, how'd you make it? He said, oh, it just popped into existence out of nothing you would get an F, right? I mean, he would kick you out of class, and that just violates every uh, presupposition that we have about the scientific method and how the world works. So one, I think, is almost self-evident, and I think that the fact that we're even arguing about it shows how strong the evidence for two is. But let's talk about why is two uh, so compelling now, and it's really surprising that it is, because I don't think 100 years ago we would have predicted that most uh, scientists and intellectuals believe that the universe began to exist. Okay, so there's two types of arguments that we can use to show that the universe began to exist. The first is philosophical arguments, and the second is scientific arguments. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the philosophical arguments because it takes a lot of time to kind of develop, and uh, you know we don't really live in a philosophically oriented culture, so we kind of it just takes more effort to think through. But let's just kind of leave it at this: an actually an actually infinite number of things cannot exist. So your blank there is actually, not potentially, but actually infinite number of things cannot exist. So here's the best way I would, I would uh, think about this. So let's say if Ryan and I here were talking and I asked Ryan to count to infinity, so just count to infinity, when would he be done? So he, he never would, right? So no matter what number you had counted to, 
you could always count one more number, right? And so the, the what that is just demonstrating is that you can never reach infinity by sequentially adding things together. So all infinity is, is it's a potential mathematically abstract concept, but it can't really exist. So this is Al-Ghazali's great insight, because of course he didn't have modern science to assist his, his inquiry, but he says if the universe was actually infinite, it was it, if the universe never began to exist, then there would be an infinite number of seconds in the past universe, right? If it never began to exist, then there would have to be an infinite number of seconds in the past. And since infinity can't exist, then that's impossible. There must have been a time in the universe that the universe began. Because there has to be, who knows what the number is, but there's a number of seconds in the history of the universe. And so if that's true, then there has to be a time when we started counting seconds, so to speak. Um, so that's uh, probably about all I want to say about that. If you are interested or you want some kind of nerd uh, entertainment, Google this idea about the Hilbert's Hotel. So this kind of this thought experiment about a hotel that has an infinite number of rooms. And so if you had an infinite number of rooms, what would it mean for half the occupants to check out or a, an infinite number of new um, visitors to check in? And I think you kind of play some thought games with that and it gets, it gets pretty interesting. So our universe is finite. That being said, since we live in 2018, the scientific age, and I think as um, you know, science-oriented people, this will maybe be more interesting to us. Let's talk about the scientific arguments for the beginning of the universe. So the first would be the Big Bang, and this was maybe the most uh, surprising and unexpected discovery in uh, the last, I don't know, long time, two, two or three hundred years of science. So most thinking, sophisticated, academically oriented people in uh, the history of Western civilization thought that the universe was eternal, that the universe didn't begin to exist. So men have assumed the universe was eternal. That's your blank, eternal. But in 1917, Albert Einstein developed his theory of relativity, and it described that the universe was fluctuating. It was either expanding or contracting. Okay, And I think this is really insightful, a, a truth about Einstein that shows even the greatest of us uh, can, can be wrong and confuse ourselves. So Einstein works out his equations for the universe, and he finds that the universe is not stable. It's either expanding or contracting. So if that's true, if it's either expanding or contracting, it means that there was a point at, in the past where it was closer together or further apart. So Einstein thought, this can't be true, because I know the universe is infinite and the universe is stable. So he created a fudge factor, a new constant that he put into his equation to make the universe be stable. He wasn't being dishonest. He just thought, my equation can't be right, because it's suggesting a fluctuating universe. So there must be a constant that's a new gravitational constant that's holding the universe stable. Well, then in the 1920s, these uh, two other um, physicists, this guy Friedman and Lemaitre, independently we're working through Einstein's equations. Kind of shows how smart Einstein is. This is like three years later, guys are working through his equations. So it takes three years for people to realize, hey, there's something wrong about your numbers here. And so they interact with Einstein and go through, and turns out they kind of all come to agreement, yeah, this, it, this doesn't work. The universe isn't stable. It seems to be expanding or contracting. So then Edwin Hubble comes up with this incredible insight that when he looks through the, you know, the best telescopes he's got at the furthest stars and galaxies in the universe, there's a red tint to them, what's the so-called red shift. And so what that's, what's that about? Well, if you remember from like, I don't know, physical science in high school or college, 
the, the wavelengths. So it's like Roy G. Bibb, red is the longest wavelength and violet is the shortest wavelength. So as things move away from you, their wavelengths appear longer than they actually are. So if, thing, if something's moving away from you very quickly, there'll be a, a mild red tint to it. And so as, as Hubble looks on the out, outreaches of the universe in every direction, he notices there's like a red tint. So the universe, from Earth's perspective, everything is moving away from us. So I don't think it takes, it, you don't have to be Edwin Hubble to think through if everything's moving away from us and let's just kind of run history backwards, that means everything began at a common place in the past. Assuming that there's been no intervention or you know some dramatic change in the physical rules of the universe, if everything's moving away, then it seemed to originate at some point in the past. So this is what has been maybe colloquially called the Big Bang. And maybe I, I just wanna make a, a brief comment I think that sometimes we perceive the phrase the Big Bang as like an opponent to Christian thinking, right? You may have kind of think like, well, atheists believe in the Big Bang, Christians believe in creation, and so there's this like tension here. And if, if that's kind of your perspective, I certainly am not here tonight to engage in uh, the battle between like creationism and science, and you know, that's just not kind of what I'm interested in doing. What, what I do want to say, though, is that the Big Bang confirms, I think, the most important truth in Genesis 1-1, which was in the beginning, God created. So the idea that the universe had a beginning is what modern science tells us. So let's not get caught up on how long ago the beginning was. The important religious and philosophical thought here is that the, there is a beginning. It doesn't go on forever. And so if, if there is a beginning, premise two, in premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now we've got really important religious questions to ask. Well, what in the world caused the beginning, right? And I think um, that's a really deep question. And smart scientists, both, both theists and atheists, recognize that this question is really significant. And so um, you kind of get a robust dialogue around what that means, which we'll talk about. This is called the initial cosmic singularity. So if you think about everything's moving away from us, there's a point in the finite past where it all began. And this is the point at which space and time, matter and energy all begin. So even tonight as I've been talking, I've, I've been saying words like before the Big Bang uh, and things like God always existed, which kind of presupposes time. That's, that's actually not accurate. We just don't have any better words to use. But before the Big Bang, well... There is no before the Big Bang. Time began at the Big Bang. So any being that exists, we'll say, without the Big Bang is timeless. There is no time without the Big Bang. And so that's just hard to even get our brains around, right? We don't, it's hard to think like, what, is, what does existence without time mean? Um, but the Big Bang suggests that, that uh, space, time, matter, and energy all began at initial singularity. So there's a question, is this, this, is, this would be what we call the standard Big Bang model. Is this correct? So these are the reasons that uh, really the scientific consensus to that question right now is yes, it is correct. There's the redshift in light, which we talked about. There's abundance of light elements in the universe, elements like helium. So if the universe had always existed, um, there, in, there should have been enough time for the light elements to have dissolved. So there shouldn't be like a bunch of helium in the universe, but there is. So that, that would suggest that the universe has not always been here. And then there's this idea of cosmic background microwave radiation. I don't want to pretend to be an expert on this, but the shortest thing I'd, I'd say is there's a bunch of radiation in the background of the universe that we would expect to be there if there was some kind of initial singularity, um, hyper in 
inflationary period of explosiveness, uh, that's a good scientific word, uh, in, the, in the past history of the universe. And if there wasn't, if the universe was relatively stable throughout all of history, we would not expect there to be this like microwave radiation in the background. And there is. So, th so this was, Craig says, this is really the discovery that kind of clinched it. They said, even maybe the last holdouts, once we discovered this cosmic background microwave radiation, they said, okay, the universe began to exist. Now let's uh, consider what that means. And so really that's what that means is the history of um, 20th century cosmology has been one kind of failed um, argument after another coming up to challenge the Big Bang uh, theory or the standard model if you want to call. And um, that has been what we've been arguing about. So the history of 20th century cosmology is these um, new models to challenge the Big, big Bang and then for one reason or another uh, they become kind of discarded. So here is there's this famous paper by these three um, cosmologists, Borg, Guth, Vilenkin. Um, none, of, none of the three are Christian, so I think this is a, kind of an unbiased perspective. But I think this quote is really powerful. And you can kind of hear in this quote almost um, a understanding of the history of this argument, right? So they're interacting from a scientific perspective into an argument that's been going on in Western civilization for 3,000 years. Right? And so they're kind of speaking into that argument uh, with the tools that we have today. So they say, It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide, that's your blank there, hide, behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. So why... You know, as a sober-minded scientist, using language like cosmologists can no longer hide, a possibility of a past eternal universe, there is no escape, and they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Why is because these are all scientists that don't that these are all scientists that believe that nothing comes into existence without a cause, right? And so if nothing comes into existence out of a cause, and now we're admitting that the universe came into existence. These are two kind of scientific premises that we can show in the lab and with research and things we know about the natural world, but they lead to a conclusion that has huge religious implications. So if you believe one and two, now you've got to say the universe has a cause. So what kind of being or thing or force could create the universe? Let's talk real briefly about thermodynamics. I don't want to spend as much time on this, but I think it is relevant. So let's talk about you know, if you think about the, the three laws of thermodynamics, the second law is this idea that unless energy, that's your blank there, unless energy is fed into a system, the system will increase in disorder. This is um, what you may remember called entropy. So entropy increases in a system unless there's something, some kind of energy put into the system that creates order. So Kyle and I at uh, Harding University in our... <coughs> Uh, freshman chemistry class, we both had Dr. Schramm. And I remember Dr. Schramm said that the second law of thermodynamics is like your dorm room. So if you think about your dorm room, if you don't put any energy, so you know your parents bring you to school, they drop you off as freshman, the dorm room looks awesome. If no energy is put into the dorm room, what happens over the course of the semester? Well, it looks like a disaster, right? It leads to disorder. And so the universe is the same way. If no energy, if no outside force is put into the universe to create um, stability, the universe moves towards disorder. So that's the second law of thermodynamics. And so this has huge implications for the end of the world. So here's what Craig says. 
Whether it will end in fire or ice, the fundamental question remains the same. If, given sufficient time, the universe will reach such a state, why is it not, why is it not now in such a condition if it has existed forever? So the second law of thermodynamics will predict the universe will expand forever, and as it expands, we'll lose heat and energy and die in the so-called heat death of the universe. So that's the universe will move towards disorder, gravitational forces between um, structures in the universe, whether it be stars or people or bricks or chairs or whatever, will gravitational structure will decrease and molecules will just move apart and apart forever and ever. And it'll be heat death. There'll be no forces over anything. We'll just be a, a low energy vacuum, right? And so if that's what happens, to systems unaffected by outside force over time, and the universe has existed forever, then why are we now not in a state of disorder, right? So obviously there's like gravity exists now. So if gravity exists now, then the, the, the universe must have not been here forever because given enough time, all the force and energy of the universe will dissipate. And so that's how the second law of thermodynamics applies to uh, believing that there's a beginning of the universe. So as you can expect, um, especially people who are antagonistic to the conclusion that the universe has a cause, uh, they would want to maybe suggest some alternative ways of thinking about this. So maybe theories to avoid a beginning of the universe. So you've got this idea of oscillating universes, oscillating universes. So this is the idea that there's going to be a eternal expanding and contracting and re-expanding and re-contracting um, of the universe. So maybe there's a big bang and then a so-called big crunch, and a big bang and a big crunch. Um, so maybe this sounds like science fiction. I, in a way, I kind of think it is. Of course, there's no evidence <coughs> for this, because how could there be? If our universe like crunched down, then this would be like a new universe that's not associated uh, with the one past. The, the point to be made here is that entropy accumulates. So um, what Gord, uh, what Vilenkin and, and Gord and, um, why can't I say their names? Yes, so Bord, Guth, and Vilenkin, what they showed is that even um, with an oscillating universe, there has to be a, a point of the first, um, the first bang, so to speak, because entropy accumulates over the successive bangs and crunches. You can have this idea of bubble universes. So maybe we got a universe that like bubbles off of old universes. It's, uh, of course, it sounds crazy. Why are we talking about this? Is there evidence for a bubble universe? No, there's not evidence for bubble universes. But if the universe began to exist, there's huge religious implications of that kind of thinking. So let's you know, I think sober-minded scientists are, let's, let's make sure that we're sure before we kind of get ahead of ourselves. So our universe, this would suggest that our universe is just a bubble in a much larger multiverse of bubble universes. Again here, the bohr guth vilenkin model theorem applies also to the multiverses. So even if there's a multiverse, even if we're bubbling off from a past universe, and that universe bubbled off from a past universe, there initially had to be a universe that had the initial um, Big Bang, so to speak. There had to be an initial beginning. Also, as it be said, um, the, uh, the work of Al-Ghazali would apply here, too. So there, there can't be an infinite number of past events. Then finally, baby universes. So maybe there's black holes, and these are entrances to wormholes. Um, and in the space in space time through which energy could travel to spawn baby universes. Maybe we are the offspring of an infinite line of ancestors. I don't even understand like what this means. I mean, I'm being serious. Like I, I've tried to kind of think about like what is a what is a baby universe and. So here's all I'll say. Apparently, um, I can't remember. There's an American physicist 
and Stephen Hawking, and um, they were in like an argument about could this be true. And Stephen Hawking subscribed to this baby universe, whatever this means with black holes and stuff. And he ended up admitting that that's not true, and we didn't we didn't spawn off from a black hole. And he paid his of debt with the bed or whatever. So the point is, it seems the scientific consensus is that we didn't come, our universe didn't come out of a black hole and spawn a new universe. So the point being, not that uh, I understand all the details about oscillating bubble or baby universes, but the scientific consensus has really disregarded these as less acceptable, as less explanatory than the standard model, which suggests that the universe does have a beginning. So here's our three premises. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. We talked about why we believe that that's almost undoubtedly true. And to argue that it's not true, I think you got a question of someone really being intellectually honest. Second, the universe began to exist. We talked about why we think that's true. And so that leads to our third, our conclusion. Therefore, the universe has a cause. So we have good philosophical and scientific reasons for believing that the universe began, that's your blank, began to exist. Since whatever begins to exist has a cause, it follows that the universe has a cause. So I want to think here just for a second about what kind of being would create the universe. And so if you think about it, it's got to be timeless because this being would exist outside of time. It's got to be spaceless. It exists outside of space. It's got to be enormously powerful because it created the universe. Um, it has to be enormously intelligent because you think about like kind of some of the stuff that Kyle talked about last week. The intricacy in the design that fits in the universe that was created, this was not a dumb being that created the universe. I mean, you think about just studying the human body. You think about how, whether the human body evolved or appeared all at one time, but to create a universe that could produce that kind of being, uh, I think just obviously argues for enormous intelligence. So those kind of characteristics, of course, are very similar to what Christian theology would say is God, and a timeless, spaceless, enormously powerful, enormously intelligent being that created the universe. Which makes me think about um, this verse in Revelation 4. So, uh, um, it's talking about praising God in heaven. It says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So like when you think about that the universe began to exist, there's a lot of reactions to that. Some are like exciting, some are intrigued, some are kind of scratching that intellectual itch you may have about thinking about the universe. But I think a, a reasonable reaction is worship, that we worship a God that created everything. And uh, I, I guess if, you know, as Bible-believing Christians, there's going to be a day where that's what we're going to do. That God created the whole universe and He's worthy of our worship. So the Kalam cosmolo cosmological argument thus gives us powerful grounds for believing in the existence of a beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, changeless, immaterial creator of the universe. So the, here's uh, Sistine Chapel. So in the creator of the universe, He's the uncaused first cause. So I want to circle back to our mountain that we talked about and this uh, mountain of wisdom. And I, I really, maybe we ought to spend a whole um, class talking about wisdom and what it means to live the Christian life and how that applies to, to intellectual pursuits. We want to be people that love God, not just um, with our behaviors, not just by reading our Bible and following spiritual routines, which of course we want to do. We want to love God with our mind. We want to engage, um, engage our mind in a life of wisdom. And so here's what Robert Jastrow, who was an, an atheist uh, physicist for NASA for most of his life, 
And um, towards the end of his life, he wrote a book commenting on the interaction between religion and science and how that all fits together. And uh, um, here's the last paragraph of his book. And so I just want to think about this mountain when you think about uh, this, this paragraph. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, this story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So I think that's a neat way to think about where we kind of are in modern science, right? So you just think about all of you know world history and philo- philosophical thought in Western civilization been thinking through all the different ways the universe can be eternal and what that means and, and how if the universe is eternal, then there's no explanation needed for what caused the universe. And it's just had this 3,000-year-old argument. And really, like, you know, within just a couple of generations, we recognize that none of that is true. And we've been wrong about all that. The idea that the universe has always, has always existed and the universe was created. It came into existence. And so... In a weird way, Genesis 1-1 is more relevant in 2018 than it has been in 2,000 years, right? Because you can be a smart, intellectual, thoughtful Christian who knows the best uh, and most cutting-edge uh, ideas in cosmology and say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, so I want to thank David for teaching tonight, for doing an awesome job with that. We'll be back next week. Grant Dasher will be with us. So we're fortunate for that, and he'll be talking on the interaction of faith and science. Hope you'll be able to join us. Hope you're having a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks.